young Kurt Cobain struggles to cope with family and authority after his parents' divorce and spends his teenage years abusing drugs and alcohol, not going to school, and being an overall melancholy menace of Aberdeen and Grace Harper. Later, Kurt starts a band with local schoolmate Chris Novoselic and eventually release an album on Sub Pop Records to little acclaim. Multiple breakups and a new contract with DGC Records later, Nirvana began working on their sophomore effort while touring rigorously. We pick up with them here. So yeah, Nevermind released in September of 1991, and while DGC only expected Nevermind to sell a quarter of a million copies, they were shocked to find the album spread like lightning through word of mouth, and by Christmas of that year, it was selling 400,000 copies a week, eventually making number one on the Billboard top charts, knocking down Michael Jackson's Dangerous, which like, holy shit, dude. Yeah, this shit, we cannot overstate how much this shit blew up. Like, uh, once that video got out on MTV, which was, like, before the album dropped, it was, like, people were fiending for this shit. This was, like... And, and you could say that It Smells Like Teen Spirit could be the song of the 90s, honestly. Like, yeah, you know? I mean, this is, like, Still. this is the beginning of, like... I mean, I feel like this is, like, the most generic sort of rock and roll magazine way of putting it, but it was, like, you know, the underground broke into the mainstream. It got number one. It yeah. fucking replaced Michael Jackson. Blew Michael out the bag. Uh, yeah, th and this was a, a real fucking, like, whiplash feeling for the band, too, because they, they were going, at the time that that uh, Nevermind is blowing up, they're still playing all these little venues and shit, and, like, shit is getting packed out now. Now, yeah. now shit's getting, like, you know, they're blowing up while they're on tour for this shit. They would have blew up more if DGC had printed more than 50,000 copies, but they didn't even expect it to sell out that. Dude, it'd be like, like, the biggest band I can think of that I used to see that was maybe on, like, Nirvana's level before this would be, like, maybe a band like Turnstile. You know, it'd be like if Turnstile was on, like, a regular, like, tour with, like, hardcore or metal bands or whatever like that, that, and then out of nowhere, they just like, be, like they replaced like Justin Bieber or some shit. Not well, he's not even big anymore. But replaced like I don't know who's yeah the big pop artist of the day. Replaced like I don't know like a uh, fucking Cardi B song or something like that. Or Beyonce. You know? Or Beyonce. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, Ice Spice. Yeah. <laughs> or Ice Spice. And like out of nowhere, these big like crusty hardcore shows are getting like overloaded by like everybody. Yeah. Like by Ice Spice fans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean by 1992, I mean throughout 1992, they had become like literally a worldwide sensation. Going they're the from biggest being, band in the world for sure. They're like the next Beatles. Like this is like a huge rock and roll explosion. Yeah. Yeah. Kurt is like the epitome of cool. Fucking everyone's like. <laughs> like now now that whole Seattle thing that shit that was percolating over there now is like now like people are trying to capitalize on it and like yeah. you, I, I heard you couldn't even catch a flight to like Seattle or Washington because it was flights were so booked with <laughs> like A&R guys and, and trying to like find the next nirvana dude i heard especially in like um england and like europe this shit also really popped off really hard like a lot of like anywhere where like rock music was big like nirvana was getting huge i mean other bands like alice in chains pearl jam soundgarden yeah. all of those bands were just popping off well yeah nirvana kind of low-key blew just before in europe before they blew all the way over yeah here. true actually yeah so but yeah grunge <laughs> this is when I mean that, the, so grunge happened like this is like these are the grunge years of, of the world yeah yeah, yeah grunge yeah. yeah you know grunge happened so uh anyway uh Kurt and Courtney Love married uh eventually on Waikiki Beach Hawaii in February 24th 1992 with Courtney wearing a shabby white dress and Kurt wearing blue pajamas so literally just months after this record came out 
He's got the money to go to fucking Waikiki and get married. Yeah, those crazy kids. Yeah, we we kind of skipped a beat. So we said that they were dating different people and everything earlier. And it was a specific uh, time in Chicago where she went to go see Billy Corgan. And he was yeah. like hanging out with his probably actual girlfriend <laughs> and uh kicked him out and nirvana was playing that show in chicago this would have been in 91 this was like right before they like right before they were blowing and like she ended up you know talking to kurt they kind of had met already before and like they go home together and like they fuck. are together oh they ever. fucked yeah they went home and pr- presumably they fucked when they went home well, and apparently they've been the, together ever since well did you say it was okay <laughs> yes uh, well apparently like, it was pretty it was like extra public apparently it was a big deal in like england when like on like some live show or whatever like they were there was like a live concert and he said that courtney love the lead singer of the sensational pop group hole is the best fuck in the world and apparently like it was like a huge tabloid sensation in england like people compared it to like when uh, fucking what, what was his name? Um, when John Lennon said the Beatles were bigger than Jesus yeah. or whatever, like it was like a huge rock and roll. This is thing. a scandal. Yeah, this is a scandal. Yeah, this is a scandal. This was like a that. scandal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's why. Yeah, saying fuck on TV. I mean, that's I mean, and in England where they're just like oh, my uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> so though initially elated by the unexpected massive success of Nirvana, Curly eventually became disillusioned by his fame as somebody that was just uh, a punk rock freak that was now selling out selling out stadiums with frat boy fans. He felt like his band was being misinterpreted by fans and the media alike. Well, yeah, they're blowing up and now they're getting all these like uh, these. Def- fair weather fans and stuff that he doesn't believe are true also kurt like we said we ha- he has that weird paradox where like he did a lot to get nirvana to this point yeah like bitching when teen spirit wasn't on mtv enough after a certain amount of time and, and then but, mad that they got to that point. and then mad yeah. when he's like super famous and can't get a second to himself so like you know. yeah he wanted it he wanted both sides yeah, yeah. for sure I mean, I mean, I mean, I can see this as being kind of weird. Like, imagine like your your entire life, like you, whether whether it was put upon you or you just are that way. You're the super weirdo dude, and then all of a sudden, like the biggest bros that probably would have beaten you up in high school start like loving your band and like showing up to your shows. Like, apparently, he kind of went back to what he was doing in high school. He he started like trying to alienate people uh, by essentially being like solid stuff. He uh, apparently like one thing I really remember when I was a kid was um, apparently he would, you know, go to shows and yell that if you were homophobic to get the fuck out. And you got to think in like the early 90s, like this is when people were throwing out like, oh, that's gay and saying the F word like nobody's business. So that's a pretty heavy thing to say. People throw, throw that out like any you know, punk or hardcore show now. Back in the day, that was a pretty wild thing to say when you're that big to yeah, be pro gay. Yeah, I mean, apparently they also played like uh, pro uh, choice benefit shows. They're getting like death threats. Like they were like really on that type of shit. Like like you know, they're huge, but they were still trying to be on some punk rock weirdo shit. So it seems cool that he was trying to. It seems like you know, trying to use some of this fame to like support some good things and stuff. But um. What the what the public seemed to pick up on was mostly the fashion and the look and the whole grunge yeah. like uh, uh, whatever never mind attitude and lifestyle that yeah. that became the craze. Never mind, not the pro life benefits and the pro mm-hmm. the, the, the 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 you know anti homophobic shit. Just people, we can't even stress that enough too. How big this whole like vibe was. Yeah, like, dude. Like Kurt became the epitome of fucking cool. Dude, it's like on a new metal episode we talked about how like Limp Biscuit and Fred Durst like invented a type of dude like 
Kurt Cobain invented the Kurt Cobain dude, like the yeah. Ugh, man, bleh, like you know. these dudes were were around for sure before, but now yeah. they were like now it was cool to it be was codified, a, yeah, <laughs> like, to be this burnout mm-hmm. dude. Like I don't care, man. I'm just trying to, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like like a death rock hippie. Sort yeah, of, yeah, you yeah. Know? Now now this is like the mainstream. I mean, those dudes still to this day like exist. Um, you know, well on another more positive note, he also you know painted his nails and sometimes wore dresses on stage. You know, he was a little bit of a, a a wild boy, kind of freaking people out a lot. You know, subverting gender norms. Dress. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't sound that crazy right now, yeah, but at yeah, the yeah. time, this was like, I, you know, I don't know. I think, I think for a long time, like youth counterculture has been very androgynous. Yeah, like that's that's pretty. Con- I think you can say that's been pretty consistent with. Like, you guys ain't never heard of a uh, like, twisted sister. True. I mean, yeah, true. but I feel like, but that's also like a band that's like I feel like kind of it's like ironic and they are sexist whereas like Nirvana it's like built in more to be like a yeah man fuck gender norms sort and to of be, thing. yeah to be blowing well, up and be this Gene mainstream Gene Snyder was a cool ass dude okay <laughs> I mean yeah I'm, I'm sure he was I, I don't know I don't be know. blowing up and be this mainstream you know at the time yeah, be like that, you know like I don't know like in the underground yeah this was sort of normal but like to be doing this on like MTV would have been yeah, like, yeah, pretty shocking yeah, for yeah. a lot of people to see uh, but speaking of heroin, uh, though Kurt first tried heroin, apparently, like, you know, probably at least in the late 80s by some point, his newfound success finally gave him enough money to fund a full-time habit. And around this time, right after, Harpy. actually really before Nirvana even blew up, but especially after they blew up, he began a constant relationship with heroin that would last him the rest of his life. Yeah, heroin was coming back in a big way. For Kurt, at least. like uh, No, no, Pulp Fiction? Like, come on. <laughs> Dude, yeah, I think the 90s did have a heroin vibe. I mean, think yeah. about, like, all the 90s bands. They all did fucking heroin. Like, yeah. 80% of the uh, the plot, like, devices in fucking Pulp Fiction is revolved around heroin. But, like, yeah, I mean, everyone did fucking heroin back then. I mean, I think, like, Alice in Chains, like, had songs about it. I did heroin it. back then, man. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Red Hot Chili Peppers fucking did heroin. Yikes. I remember that. What song is that? Um, around uh, the world. Around the yeah. world. <laughs> I play that clip in here like probably at least once a podcast. Dude just did an Asian stereotype yeah. accent like ding, for fun. Ding, tong, tong, like a thousand it made times. Us sing along. Yeah, it made us sing along. Like, <laughs> dude, so I, I got a couple. <laughs> I got a couple interesting details. I mean, if y'all got anything else from this time period, we can go ahead because it's going to get kind of dark after this. But like, just no. one interesting detail I found from the book was uh, how in 1992, um, though he usually begrudgingly accepted autographs uh one time a black guy asked for one and he told him quote these are the quotes this is the quote from kirk urbane's mouth no one black has ever said they liked my record before this is like this quote to me is like i'm picturing like some king in england and like (laughs) (laughs) no one black has ever said they loved my my crown I think it was kind of sincere. It's a yeah, weird, yeah, it's a weird yeah. note, but I think it's sincere. He's just like, wow. Yeah, I just picture him like strung out with he, sunglasses on. He's like, no one black has ever said they liked my record. I mean, that's almost an accurate, uh, probably reenactment yeah. of the situation. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is like a this is like a white dude from like the Pacific Northwest. Probably didn't know many black dudes, you know, in general. And you know, he liked Jimi Hendrix and Lead Belly, and that's probably he was like, whoa, like a black guy like my band. You know, I feel like you know, I, I don't know. It's probably something weird like that. I don't know. I've never a met weird a, I've white never dude. met a person from Japan in real life, and if they shook my hand, I wouldn't be like, no one Japanese has ever shook my hand. <laughs> dude, I, I feel think- like that's something someone in Japan would say to like. 
someone that's not in Japan, though. It's so fucking <laughs> if, weird. If a Japanese yeah, dude yeah, totally told weird. you, like, hey, man, I like your podcast, you wouldn't be like, that's fucking dope. I'd be like, cool, someone from, like, a foreign country like my podcast. That's weird, but I wouldn't be like, you wouldn't, you one wouldn't, one I, Japanese well, has liked my podcast. You wouldn't write it down in your journal? Or? No. <laughs> I, I do think we're taking a generous interpretation of the of the scenario. Like, I, I, I am kind of on the, uh, more on the, of the opinion that Kurt was, like, a Seattle white boy and yeah. just, yeah. like, didn't really... And he was you know, stoked. Care. I don't yeah. like like this. Like even when he, when he uh, when he plays the Lead Belly song on uh, on the um, unplugged unplugged, you know he says it's one of his favorite performers of all time or his favorite his favorite yeah. performer of all time, and I I don't believe him. I think he's just saying that. Mm. You think he was you know, being woke about it when he was just like, no. yeah, like. Like, uh, like I'm mostly influenced by so, like some uh, kind of flex. A black artist. I think it was a flex. Mm, I like you know? the real original rock and roll, like Red Belly, before the white man took it, sort of woke thing. Yeah, thing? something like yeah, that. I and that. I, you know, but 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 I think this is why though. Like I'm holding on to that mythology, and and that is like making me like appreciate and get something out of Nirvana, and I guess I'm getting ahead of the game. But no, I feel you. Uh, yeah, you know, like like, like, like I think like, it's I think. You know, some of this stuff is made up. Some of this stuff is embellished, and I think that's okay. Yeah, uh, because it's doing something positive. It's still but, positive in the long run. Yeah. yeah so, say. but when you, yeah, when but when we hear about the the cats and the the girl, it's like, <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> it takes yeah. cats in the cradle. <laughs> you lose a couple points for that. So I, I know uh, another one of the big epitomes of their career. Not that that was exactly a, an epitome of their career, but you know, it's interesting. <laughs> um, they at one point played on Saturday Night Live, what the headline Saturday Night Live, and yeah. apparently um, at the end of the show. Uh, Chris Novosel came in and French kissed Kurt on stage, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. So crazy. What? Which they ended up editing out of the fucking uh, broadcast. Yeah, subsequent bo- broadcast. Oh, they were like, we can't show two oh. men kissing. Yeah, that's so too bad. I, it was. Yeah, been neat. <laughs> it was. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. They it, tried. I mean, I think it, it aired. It aired that night, but because it was live or whatever. But like, I think they cut it out of like the. I don't know how everyone. Yeah, I mean, it's now. crazy to DVDs. think, but in like, <laughs> 1992, people who said that that's like not family friendly and a bunch of dumb shit like that, you know? Yeah, sure, that plays at fucking midnight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this isn't my. What if my eight year old child saw that shit? If you guys think about it, most of Saturday Night Live is playing on Sunday morning, so it's a yeah, lie from yeah. the top. Top to bottom, it's yeah. a lie. So Sunday morning lie does not sound nearly as nice. You know? uh, so yeah, I mean to kind of on a Sunday morning. So to kind of transition into the dark years, uh, the morning after that SNL performance, he actually experienced his first of many overdoses on heroin, in which Courtney Love would have to resuscitate him back to life. And this would be something that would happen throughout the rest of his yeah, life. Yeah, dozens of times probably after this, or at least a dozen times. Uh, and, and it would just became, like, regular degular for Courtney to, yeah. like, revive him, hit him with some of that fucking... Um, Narcan. Narcan. Or you know, talk, talk about privilege. <laughs> what? <laughs> Apparently it was illegal to possess back then, too. Narcan? Mm-hmm. Narcan, yeah. It still kind of is in some They give that yeah. shit out to free. They give... Dude, yeah. they give not, the, A lot of places street. are, like, fighting against it, and, like, I do think there are some states where it's still not, like, freely available. It's kind of wild. When I was in uh, South Carolina, when Kaylee and I went and had lunch downtown, like we literally were walking to this uh, like f- tavern place, like the, that's an outdoor market, and there was literally just like fifty Narcan bottles just like used on the street, like as we were walking over them. It was hey, wild. Be like that. Heroin. Hey guys, uh, real quick, while Mark's looking at something uh, <laughs> terrified, 
Um, heroin is. Oh, we got a new follower. Heroin's Very a nice. heroin's a bad drug. Oh yeah, um, don't fuck with heroin. Should have never you, done that. You shouldn't should do have heroin. Never done that. Um, <laughs> if you're doing heroin, you, you should try to get clean. You should have never done that. Honestly. We know it's hard though. We know it's hard. We're here for you. All right, so now we're kind of getting towards the later years of Kurt's life. Things are about to start getting pretty sad. But first, uh, things were pretty nice when the couple had a baby together in August 18th of 1992, and they named their baby Francis Bean Cobain, though their pregnancy was mired in controversy amid rumors that both Kurt and Courtney used heroin throughout the pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. They were kind of like coming out of the rock uh, the rock magazines and more into like the tabloids and stuff now because they were that big. And, I mean, I think we're going to talk about it for a second. There was a, a Vanity Fair article that, like, really fucked them over. Yeah, dude. I mean, what was it called? It was, like, Trouble It was and... called a Strange Love. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, it, it sucks, but I also kind of get it. Like, if they're doing fucking heroin, that really yeah, sucks. that's not like, cool. Yeah. Um, fucking, I mean, here's the weird thing, too, because it's, like... They basically, you know, changed a lot after this article and, like, you know, stayed reluctant and reclusive and shit. But, like, Courtney admitted to this in the article. Yeah. Courtney was just being herself. And I think she was more used to press being, like, her friends or someone from the punk scene. And so, like, this yeah. Vanity Fair, like, a reporter or journalist, like, uh, you know, just documented what she saw and kind of wrote it all out. Especially the fuck. And they had some sources, some inside sources that people yeah. were worried about the health of the baby because they were junkies. And this is some super, like, big celebrity gossip. And it's, like, justified yeah. to some yeah. extent because, like, that is wild. Like, so to be pregnant and doing heroin. Like. Yeah, so Courtney, I guess, maybe thought she would be protected or that she could say anything and, like, you know, it'd be doctored up or something. But the, the journalist put it out as is, you know. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. hey, this shit is fucking gross. Well, what's <laughs> crazy is, like, just based on that article, not any, like, actual like eyewitness testimony besides just what was, what was in that article Francis was actually taken away from Kurt and Courtney for several weeks almost I mean again just entirely based on that article yeah they couldn't have any unsupervised custody with her she was put into the like custody of like her uh, Courtney loves like us stepsister or, or a half sister or something who she barely knew and they were like drug tested and stuff it was a whole scandal yeah I mean, they did try to get clean. I mean, I, I think uh, Courtney got mostly clean, and Kurt tried a little bit. Uh, and in fact, like he was actually going through detox when they shot the music video for "Come As You Are," and that's why his like face is covered by like the Kool Aid like colored uh, like his Kool Aid colored hair the whole yeah, time because he looked like shit. Yeah, and, and distorting his face and all those takes of him and stuff. Yeah, because he was looking kind of scabby and nasty. Yeah, but even after getting their baby back, Kurt in particular became an increasingly serious heroin user often even retreating to local hotels to shoot up by himself, especially after Courtney made a rule about not using drugs in the house. Yeah, there was that home video, like, I guess it was the baby's birthday or some shit, where, like, you guys showed me, like, Kurt's, like, just holding the baby, like, high as fuck just, on like, it. nodding out almost and like, stuff. Like, yeah. about to, like, drop the baby because he's passing <clears throat> out. Yeah, there's some tough, there's a couple tough home videos uh, around this time, you know. I mean... <sighs> she was a problem. Yeah, yeah, my guy. I think I think Courtney made a, an uh, honest effort to try and clean up a lot, but and I think that just made Kurt even more like, well, shit. If you're gonna be clean, well, I can be even more fucked up. And Kurt, man, Kurt was just like, dude, he he's. Whereas, like, I think Courtney when they were using, and I, I think Courtney was using because he was using really, and like you know for like fun or recreation, Kurt was seeking like escapism. Yeah, all the time. Even the amount that he would use was like a crazy amount. Like that, you know, I guess heroin addicts say it was like not 
you know, typical dosages. Like, could stuff. kill, like, some people or give them overdoses way more often, which he did have overdoses a lot. But, yeah. like, apparently, like, I mean, yeah, it was a huge uh, piece of contention in, like, the relationship. I mean, yeah, she did heroin a little bit. He was... She did drugs a little bit, but he was doing it so bad. Like, they were getting fights over this shit. And one time, apparently, like, they got so upset that uh, he made the biggest threat he could make to her. The one thing that he knew would piss her off more than anything else. And he threatened to leave the house and go smoke crack. Yeah. I, I really think he was, like, this was, like, his build-up to his suicide. Like, he was just hoping, like, that's why he was doing these crazy amounts. Was, like, maybe I just won't live through this one. Like, this will be my way yeah. to die. And mm-hmm. then, like, mm-hmm. that he kept, like, getting through it, and he was finally like, okay, I'll just do it for real. But, like, this was, like, his way of, like, it's like those people that, like, get drunk and, like, purposely drive their car because they're like, fuck it, I'll just, this is yeah. how I'll go. Yeah. I mean, like, I think at the end of the day, Kurt really hated a lot of things about himself, and this was a way to escape, and suicide was always on his brain. So, yeah, I think sometimes it was, like, yeah, if I die, I die. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah, but smoking crack, man. Wow. <laughs> that would have been wild. I mean, yeah, imagine. I mean, you don't think of a rock star as being a crackhead, though, you know? Like, crack's a wild drug, man. I mean, heroin. I, what's worse, crack or heroin? Heroin? Yeah, I think probably heroin. Probably, uh, yeah. They're both fairly yeah, but You'll bad. sell your fucking so children here's, on So here's the one. thing. Here's the yeah. thing. Heroin, is, they're both, like, heroin is definitely worse addictive-wise. Yeah. Like, you literally have to be given, like, synthetic heroin to come off of it or you'll die. Crack is highly addictive, but not as addictive as heroin. But the the fucking... Um, like, the effects of crack are what makes it it's wild. It's not even, not even that. It's the, the... Crack is seen as a poor black man's drug. I mean, and the heroin, CIA used it to fucking destroy exactly, you know, but like the the social like shame around crack, yeah, is that it's a poor man's, it's a black yeah. man's drug. The stigma and heroin is seen as more of a white and elevated sometime drug. And it was a like rock a star. Drug. That's why we are fighting an opioid crisis, and yes. you know, and like actually do, trying yeah. to do something about it instead of yeah. other crises that we. Yeah, the next rural. It's it's literally it yeah. it it's it's like a systemic racism thing. Like the reason why you don't see a lot of big like rock stars and stuff is because there's shame behind the crack because you don't want to be viewed as like a a poor black person. So you are you saying like a, it would have been more progressive if he had just smoked crack? <laughs> I don't think it would. I'm not saying that. I'm thinking like on a subconscious level, like that's where like the thing is at. Yeah, like, yeah. Heroin is definitely a, a worse drug. But it's not the the stigma behind it is like oh you're a crackhead I'll instead of a heroin. The romanization, the romanization, which we'll talk about later. But the romanization that we sort of attribute to Kurt's like drug use and everything that happens after this, like I do think it would be a lot different if he was also known as like a crackhead, yeah. like for sure. You know, it would have been a very different story. There's something about heroin that maybe it's because romanticized, of- but by rock, for rock stars and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Because, you know, you shoot it up and you're like, whoa, you know, it's it's that whole thing. Um, so, yeah, around this time that Kurt Cobain was doing uh, heroin, like, way more seriously, Nirvana's band activity also started to wane seriously throughout this uh, his addiction, with Kurt often turning down shows due to his constant physical pain as well as his constant nagging heroin addiction. Still, the band continued to write songs together, with Kurt planning for their next record to be morbidly titled, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die, which he said was a joke. Yeah, it's just a joke. You're just joking. Just joking, just, just addicted to just heroin. Joshing. Just joshing. Just joshing around. I mean, I think... You know, both. Do you think that's like a self-sabotage thing as well, where it's like, yeah, like the media is crucifying me. Yeah, everyone's Everyone's got all these problems. Well, what if I just hate myself and I want to die? How would you feel about that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I can see that very much. Kurt, 
like, you know, like, oh, fuck you guys. It's all just same thing he did with, like, you know, what we we said he might have done with his uh, uh, jumping back and forth between houses, self-sabotaging. Be yeah. Like, oh, no one wants yeah. me. I'm uh, you know. Yeah, if yeah. you don't if you don't like me throughout like a, a the, some the entirety yeah. of his life has been just this big giant cry for help. Yeah. 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 Yes. Definitely. Yes. And yes. self sabotage. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Easily. Uh, so yeah, eventually, I hate myself and I want to die. Was given the more friendly title in Utero, which was released on September of 1993. Once again, to major success, debuting at number one on the Billboard Top 100, despite not initially even being sold at Walmart or Kmart because of the song title "Rape Me." Yeah, uh, I think Chris Novoselic was one of the people who really kind of convinced him not to name it that. Because what if kids did commit suicide, and uh, yeah. you know the lawsuits potentially for that, and and the you know moral you know uh repercussions of it but and definitely yeah. wouldn't have sold as well like, no definitely certainly not. not but you know kurt doesn't really didn't really give a fuck about that or maybe he he'd already gotten his bag at this point yeah like, maybe yeah. he did he always made whenever there was a choice to be made on like the band like he always made the, the choice for the band to do more or or like you know to be more profitable i guess yeah so. Although, I mean, it should be said, I mean, In Utero is definitely a major departure from the sound of Nevermind. Like, even though it definitely has some pop hits that are still huge in the radio, uh, I mean, like, Heart Shaped Box is still, like, a huge radio bop. I mean, overall, the B-sides on that album are, like, markedly, like, way more raw than most of the songs on Nevermind, even yeah. on Bleach to some extent. Yeah, I think it's interesting because this is definitely uh, a different side of uh, of the band. This is the band after fame. This is the band yeah. after success. This is the band. This is Kurt after fatherhood and, you know, uh, marriage and stuff. So definitely you could see a different side of them. I think it's an interesting album. Yeah, I think it's the most Kurt Cobain Nirvana record. Although at the same time, I say that despite the fact that I know that Chris and uh, Dave had a lot more input on the songwriting on this one too. So hmm. it's just it's the most Nirvana album I'd say. You know, it. it mm-hmm. I actually really enjoy it in your. It used to be one of my favorite albums of theirs, but now I'd honestly just say never mind, which is kind of corny, but. Uh, never mind. I got to put in a weird little note here, too, that's an interesting thing about Kurt's character. This is around the time, too, uh, before In, in Utero came out, when he made uh, <laughs> arrangements to, like, because uh, they were splitting everything three ways before this, and uh, Kurt decided that, that w- he didn't like that arrangement. Yeah. And he wanted- Apparently partially because of the nudging of the, Courtney. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and because the writing credits, having writing credits, which Kurt wrote all the songs and yeah. wrote all the lyrics. He did do most of Is a big difference yeah. than just having like the, you know, musical, uh, you know, um, instrumentation on an album. So, yeah. And he shot for that, which would split things 75%, 25, you know. Yeah. So that's kind of tough and had, uh, you know, some feelings in the band around this time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, apparently the band was just in in pretty dire straits. Now, I mean, yeah, I think we talked about this earlier off the uh, podcast, but like it was like he was King Kurt, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was the one. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Kurt didn't have to at this point in the in in Kurt's life. Kurt didn't have to do anything he didn't want to do. Yeah, and speaking of something he apparently did not want to initially do, they did go on to play uh, infamously, well not even infamously, I mean just famously, the uh, MTV Unplugged show, where yeah. they, they uh, recorded a whole set with like a bunch of covers and originals. Um, mostly covers too, yeah. Yeah, I think it was mostly, if not at least half covers, uh, which is definitely one of the most famous like MTV Unplugged, you know, sessions ever i mean it, it, I can mean, you can you name another one like i think it is like the what like put that on the map yeah for real yeah there's a couple others that I didn't really know about until recently but uh yeah that's the one 
It's weird because like whenever I think of MTV Unplugged, I imagine that set with like the candles and the flowers and all that shit. And like apparently that was like uh like a special request and yeah. it looked like a funeral and everything. Yeah. That was by design by Kurt. Too. But like every time I watched another MTV Unplugged, it was just like a regular thing and I was like, Oh, they don't all like do like a big elaborate thing. Yo, to bring up the mood real quick, can we talk about the other famous um acoustic nirvana? Song Which by, one? by Puddle of Mud. <laughs> oh God! Can you put that in here? That oh, about a girl by Puddle of Mud. Wait, yeah, yeah, about the, wait, yeah, it's about come, a girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, can, can you can you play like a snippet of that? I'll cut a clip of yeah, it. Yeah, this is the legacy sure. of that song, which was performed on MTV Unplugged, and which also was about uh, Tracy Miranda. Yeah, the yeah. Only so song let's, you wrote about her. All right, audience. So let's play <laughs> about a girl by uh, Puddle of Mud. <laughs> We're back. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, that was really good. <laughs> um, glad I'm glad. That will say one thing. We're not at the legacy yet, but damn, butt rock is the legacy of Nirvana. Yeah, we'll talk the, about you know the most. There, yeah, we'll get into it. There yeah. would be no Creed. Yeah, probably not. Clearly, no puddle of mud. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> so she but, fucking hates me. <laughs> God. Hey. Are you a libertarian who hates laws and paying taxes, but you don't have the funds from your own apartheid emerald mine? Then boy, do we have the town just for your budget. Come on down to Slab City, USA, the last free place in America where you can find all types of people like trash wizards, doomsday preppers, artists who specialize in found art or trash art, self-medicating veterans and live music, Bohemian counterculture, man. Self-proclaimed anarchists. Free-range humans. Trash, meth, $3 showers. Weak, weak Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi. Like, really weak Wi-Fi. Electricity, but only during the day. I think there's like 50 copies of Time Cop down there, dude. You can get like 30 copies of The Lion King 2 on VHS. Mad Cat's GameCube controllers. And all other forms of wookery. Come on out to the desert and enjoy all the sights, sounds, and smells of Slap City. We'll see you there. So uh, to kind of to kind of wrap this thing up before we end this episode, let's get into it. The uh, the final days of Kurt Cobain. So Kurt was diagnosed with bronchitis while playing a Nirvana show in Germany in March of 1994, and was then flown to Rome for treatment, where he stayed with Courtney Love. The next morning, Courtney woke up to find Kurt unconscious after overdosing on Rufinol, otherwise known as Rufies, the date rape drug. Yeah, so Kurt, like, he didn't even want to go on this tour, this European tour, but he was trying to get this fucking last little bag, and he just couldn't do it, man. His stomach was killing him. He's eating like shit, and tour is hard on him or whatever. So he 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 bails out of the tour. He gets a doctor to write a thing saying he has bronchitis, so he won't be liable for it. Mm-hmm. And he flies out to Rome to have this kind of, like, uh, he hadn't seen Courtney and Francis in, like, a month or so. It had been a while. He wanted to have this big romantic, like, thing, and, like, he went and got flowers and, like, bought her some fucking nice ass ring and shit and uh, kicked off a piece of the Coliseum for her. Yeah, they hadn't seen each other in like the longest time they'd ever not seen each other apparently. And so it was supposed to be this big romantic like reunion and when they got back together it kind of wasn't that. He was tired. Yeah. And uh, he had this weird suspicion that she was trying to hook back up with Billy Corgan. Yeah. And at the end of the night when uh, they didn't bang 
Yeah, essentially, yeah. <laughs> he decided to apparently write a suicide note, say you don't love me anymore, and like down like 60 movies. So that's what's crazy is the media was told that this, this was just another accidental overdose. But what they did not know was that, yeah, he had written a suicide note. And Courtney Love later on went to go say that this was his first serious suicide attempt. And that concert before the suicide attempt on March 1st, 1994, would go on to be Nirvana's last show. So after being revived, Kurt's demeanor had totally changed. He started avoiding his bandmates, Courtney, and all of his non-junkie friends. The band even believed that Nirvana had effectively broken up, and Kurt ignored an offer to headline the 1994 Lollapalooza, which would have definitely been like, if he, what, what happens didn't happen, that would have been like the beginning of just Nirvana being the biggest rock star forever. Yeah, probably one of their biggest shows, like, yeah. seriously. Later in March that year, Courtney called the Seattle police to report that Kurt was suicidal and locked himself in a room with several guns. When the police arrived, they confiscated the guns and a bottle of pills. Yeah, Kurt su supposedly was very different after Rome. Like, yeah, when they got know. back, yeah. Um, yeah, so was Sublime. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, true. We needed that. You know, we needed that. We needed that. Yeah. There it is. Good on you, Keith. So, a, a week later, after the incident with the police, Courtney staged an intervention with Kurt with some of Kurt's best friends as well as his record executives, who made an ultimatum when they said that they would drop Kurt if he didn't quit the drugs. Kurt, who was actually high at the time of the intervention, reluctantly agreed to fly to Los Angeles for rehab. Yeah, Kurt, they, they kind of trapped him in this intervention. Kurt hadn't been, like like I said, distancing himself from anyone who wasn't a junkie friend, and mostly his friend Dylan Carlson was, like, the main dude he hung out with, who actually, like, suggested they not that he not quit heroin, actually. He's like, no, man, who am I going to hang out with? He's like, it's not bothering anybody. He's like, he's rich. That was Dylan's, like, whole yeah. argument. But anyway, they fucking, uh, they kind of trapped him in this in intervention. Courtney slashes his tires, and when he came down... He was not about it. He was not. A, he was really forced to do this. Yeah, like, he like apparently like the whole like intervention. He was just looking down at his like shoes. He was just being like, oh, "Fuck y'all!" Apparently, he like lashed out at some people saying, yeah, like, "Well, tried, you do drugs too." Like, yeah, he tried to attack Dylan at first because he thought Dylan like lured him into this. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like you know Dylan's the one who wants you to keep going. Yeah, he's like, I was just getting high with you five seconds ago. <laughs> yeah, bro. literally. Like this is a shock to me too. So um, at the rehab center, uh, Kurt, the people at the rehab center basically did not know that Kurt Cobain had just attempted suicide pretty much just days before so he was treated just like any other drug user rather than being put on suicide watch so there was like nothing to really contain him in uh this rehab center um and while he was there friends came to see him and they said that he seemed to be in a strangely good mood like despite the fact that he was having this breakdown and all this terrible stuff was happening he seemed to be in a good mood he seemed to be kind of, be kind of chilling and he was even seen smiling with his daughter for the last time while he was at the facility. Yeah, they brought Pr Francis Bean in so he could see her. And yeah, everyone said he seemed fine, but Kurt had other plans apparently. Well, this is something you hear about. I mean, apparently even like when he went on a, I mean, we'll get to it in a moment, but like he took a plane back to Seattle soon after this. And like he apparently saw like one of the members of, what was it, uh, Guns N' Roses? Well, or? yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He ran into Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses on the plane. Who like they had like a little bit of a rivalry with. They had beef with, uh, mostly with Axl Rose, but you know, you know how band beef is. But anyway, like when they saw each other, <laughs> he was like, yeah, Kurt was like weirdly happy. And this is something you hear about when people make the decision that they're going to kill themselves yeah. is they sort of land at this sort of like, 
acceptance of what's going to happen and it's sort of like a weird elation i mean it's so difficult to describe because yeah. it must it's an emotion i cannot well duff, duff did yeah. say I mean, what a weird fucking name duff, duff. <laughs> <laughs> but bro said that like he could tell something was going on though and he was even going to invite kurt to come hang out which would have been a cool olive branch but like kurt had already dipped off into the limousine before he could like you know he had other plans put it out there so yeah so backing up a bit soon after being admitted to the facility kurt jumped a small fence by the smoking section and got a plane back to his home in Seattle. He was seen around the city on April 2nd and 3rd, mostly by other junkies, but but Courtney and Kurt's friends and family had no idea where he was. A search party of friends was formed and a private investigator was hired, but nobody could find Kurt anywhere in the house, though they had neglected to look in the back of the greenhouse. Yeah, above the greenhouse. And, uh, yeah, this is where we get to kind of like the end of Kurt's story here. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, they they had no idea where he was. They knew he had he had escaped. He jumped over a six-foot wall. Again, he was easily able to escape because he was not on suicide watch. So he's back. Nobody knows where the fuck he is. And, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a disturbing note that we'll get into in a moment. But first, let's get into it. It was most likely on April 5th of 1994 that Kurt Cobain had woken up before dawn to write his final words on a piece of paper. He packed up the note, a pen, a Barks root beer, his works box of heroin, a couple of folded towels, and his Remington Model 11 20 gauge shotgun before heading to the greenhouse. He stabbed his note through the pen in a flower pot, took a massive dose of heroin that would have been lethal to even most junkies, he put the gun to his mouth and pulled the trigger. There he is. Yeah. That shotgun, by the way, Dylan Carlson, he had Dylan Carlson buy for him because we had said earlier all his weapons had been confiscated earlier. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the most disturbing notes of this, which is really highlighted well and Heavier Than Heaven, is that his body was found on April 8th by an electrician, which meant that when his friends had searched for him in the house... He was already dead. He was already dead. They had yeah. just did not think to look into the greenhouse. In fact, apparently there was someone who said that they felt like they saw something in the greenhouse... Uh, but it was like while they were leaving, and he was like, "Oh no, it's it's nothing, it's nothing." Yeah, uh, I mean, and it was also when the, when the private eye and I believe Dylan Carlson came looking in uh, uh, around the house. Uh, fucking, it was also like a rainy, dark day, which it might have been kind of hard to see at the time. But dude, what a haunting feeling! Imagine those people later on knowing, yeah, you know that while they were there on that rainy, dark day, that, that yeah, his body was there, yeah. dead. And that's also kind of like tragic to know that like he he lay there maybe dead for like you know over forty eight hours or so, yeah. before he was found. Yeah, dude. Um, Rigor mortis is fucking wilding out. To make it even more like dark and macabre, like his body was found, like you said, by an electrician who was coming to fix something at the house. Just a dude. Yeah, just some dude who saw his body in the in the inside of the greenhouse, and you know, called his supervisor, who then called the fucking radio station. Wild dude. <laughs> and, and was like, "Hey guys, uh, Bobby here. First time, long time. Uh, love the Dax Danger and Ivy Lane in the AM Rain show. I listen to you guys every morning. But anyway, my name's Bobby. I'm a dispatch over here at ICS Solutions, and uh, I got a unit down on Lake Washington Boulevard. And Dax, I'm gonna need some. Uh, I'm gonna need some Bon Jovi tickets for this one because uh, my guy down there tells me that Kurt Cobain is uh, Kurt Cobain is dead. dead, dead, dead okay, dead, uh, uh, Dax, I'll take those uh, tickets off the air. Okay, later." <laughs> 
Dude, that's so <laughs> wild. It's fucking cold. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck, dude? This is how Kurt's mom finds out. This is how like most people find out. On the fucking like radio. On, live it, on the radio. It just like cook 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 crossover. Alright. Like, 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 like all the fucking radio bullshit. <laughs> we just got bullshit. some wild news. Kurt Cobain committed suicide. And then like his mom listened to that. <laughs> and that's how she found out. That's yeah, so that's wild, dude. Sad as shit, dude. Yeah, man. Fucking sad, dude. So after Kurt's death, Kurt was cremated and there was a massive public vigil where a tape recorded by Courtney Love was played in which she read his suicide note since it was largely addressed to his fans. Like most of it is very clearly addressed to his fans. I don't really think it takes away his dignity to read this considering that it's addressed to most of you. He's such an asshole. I want you all to say ass really loud. This note should be pretty easy to understand. All the warnings from the Punk Rock 101 curses over the years since my first introduction to the, shall we say, ethics involved with independence and the embracement of your community has proven to be very true. I haven't felt the excitement of listening to as well as creating music along with really writing something for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. For example, when we're backstage and the lights go out and the manic roar of the crowd begins, it doesn't affect me the way in which it did for Freddie Mercury, who seemed to love and relish in the love and adoration from the crowd. Well, Kurt, so f***ing what? Then don't be a rock star, you ass which is something I totally admire and envy. The fact is, I can't fool you, any one of you. It simply isn't fair to you or to me. The worst crime I can think of would be to pull people off by faking it and pretending as if I'm having 100% fun. No, Kurt, the worst crime I can think of is for you to just continue being a rock star when you hate it and just stop. Sometimes I feel as I should have a punch-in-time clock before I walk out on stage. I've tried everything within my power to appreciate it, and I do. God, believe me, I do, but it's not enough. I appreciate the fact that I and we have affected and entertained a lot of people. I must be one of those narcissists who only appreciate things when they're alone. I'm too sensitive. Oh. I need to be slightly numb in order to regain the enthusiasm I once had as a child. On our last three tours, I've had a much better appreciation of all the people I've known personally and as fans of our music, but I still can't get out the frustration, the guilt, or the empathy I have for everybody. There's good in all of us, and I simply love people too much. So why did you just stay so much that it makes me feel too sad. The sad, little, sensitive, unappreciative, Pisces, Jesus, man. Oh, shut up, Pastor. Why don't you just enjoy it? I don't know. Then he goes on to say personal things to me that are none of your damn business. Personal things of Francis that are none of your damn business. I have it good, very good, and I'm grateful. But since the age of seven, I've become hateful towards all humans in general, only because it seems so easy for people to get along and have empathy. Empathy. Only because I love and feel for people too much, I guess. Thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concern during the last years. 
I'm too much of an erratic, moody person and I don't have the passion anymore. Peace, love, empathy, Kirko, baby. And then there's some more personal things that are none of your damn businesses. And just remember, this is all bullshit. It's hard to say with Courtney Love, you know what I'm saying? I think it's mostly sincere. Yeah, so uh, just after his suicide, in the wake of his suicide, there was also believed to be several copycat suicides, including apparently a triple suicide in Vancouver um, that were in reaction to news of Kurt's death. And apparently a lot of people in the news were worried that there would be a huge wave of suicides after this, but apparently there was no notable increase in the suicide rate after Kurt's death, but there were at least a few people who really you know, took this that hard. It's also really hard to uh, categorize a copycat suicide because other than these couple documented cases where people literally were known to be big fans or were literally listening to Kurt Cobain before they uh, died or like, who knows? You don't know why someone commits suicide. Yeah. It's not like there's an objective reason that you know, so. It's probably people that are deeply depressed and suicidal already, yeah. you know, for sure. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's the whole story. I mean, there's a, there's a little bit more though. I mean, we didn't really that's talk much Kurt's, about, that's where Kurt's story stops at least. So we didn't really get much of the conspiracy theory. Like, how, how <laughs> that's where you? Kurt's story stops. <laughs> so, what do you, so, you know, even though that's the, that's the, uh, generally accepted official story that Kurt Cobain killed himself, but some people believe that Courtney had a little bit too much of Kurt Cobain's shit and had him killed. There's so much, oh my so god, much. there's so much, like, conspiracy theory, Courtney Love fucking bullshit out there. And look, hey, be my guest. I dabbled into it for a while. Like I said, this has been a long research project, so I had a little bit of a, some time to throw away into that, and thank god I've had time to forget most of it, because mm -hmm. I do think it's mostly bullshit. What do you think is the likelihood that, you know, this was uh, orchestrated? I don't. Mm -hmm. He was a deeply disturbed, sad person who had tried to kill himself previously yeah. and hated every aspect of his life. Bro, but my boy El Duce don't lie. Yeah, El Duce. <laughs> he had, <laughs> what was his band's name? Uh, the fucking... Uh, the, oh, the um, the Mentors. The Mentors. They've played yeah. out here, actually. That Gigi really? Allen. Yeah, that, that fucking venue. Uh, what was that fucking venue on Granby Street? Oh, Poor House. Yeah, Poor House had them play there several wow. times. Sounds yeah. about right. <laughs> yeah, fucking... Uh, what was his name again? Uh, El, Duce. El Duce. El Duce did like a documentary where like he said that he was he was like, yep, uh, she paid me, uh, she gave me a beer and she said I need you to kill Court or kill Kurt Cobain and I said, well, if you're paying up, I'll do it. And uh, so apparently he he had a reputation for doing s s shitty things for money. Well, apparently he paid another guy to go do it, but apparently like in the documentary, like they interviewed the guy and then later on while shooting the documentary, El Duce was mysteriously. Uh, hit by, by a, train. a train and decapitated like that yeah. week, the week, like days after he did this footage in the documentary. Which, like, that's pretty wild, that dude. That is a look, hey man, like I heard, like I heard an old woman once say somewhere, uh, you know, one, one coincidence smells fishy, two coincidence, someone's getting fucked. I'd give it a five <laughs> percent chance that's that it was some nefarious deeds, but I do think more than likely. Yeah, I more think, than, yeah, yeah, more than likely. There's a lot of, there's a whole, like we said, there's a whole rabbit hole you can go down into the, like, you know, 
uh, conspiracy of, of Kurt's murder because there is a lot of just weird things like you know especially the way his uh, it was ruled a suicide right away but at the end of the day like I said I, I mean ruled a suicide right away there's a shotgun in his mouth and You're, his brains are blown out like I mean well the big thing that people <laughs> like to say is the shotgun was like too long in the wrong position and he was on so much heroin that like it would have been impossible <laughs> for him to have the uh, dexterity to pull the trigger or whatever and like I don't, I don't know man and all these little in in uh, incongruities in like the story as a whole that we probably skipped over, but I think most of it's whack job shit. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So, uh, an important note to sort of end on as far as uh, the Kirk Cobain suicide thing is the uh, the weird year that he died. He joined what's known as the Twenty Seven Club, which is this weird coincidence where like a bunch of uh, rock related people, mostly singers. Um, all died at 27. So that includes Brian Jones, the founding member of the Rolling Stones, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, the singer of The Doors, of course, Kurt Cobain, and most recently, Amy Winehouse. And apparently, even when his mom found out about this, like after she found out from that uh, radio station and was soon after interviewed, the first thing she said was that he joined that stupid club. So I, I think told him not to join that stupid club. So I think he told. I think, dude, this is what I think is like. I think on some degree. I think he he had like this whole thing planned out. I think his entire life he was like, yeah, I'm I'm going to kill myself when I'm 27. Okay. Despite having like a wife and a three year old daughter and everything, he was like, no, I'm going to do the thing. Uh, Should have never dude. done that. Should have never done that. He should have never done that. What he did. So I think uh, maybe a last note to get into before we ask what the good times killing us. So like, do you feel as if to some extent? The legacy, and maybe we should roundtable this. Do you think that the legacy of Nirvana is largely sort of elevated and romanticized to a degree that it would have not been if it were not for Kurt Cobain's suicide? Uh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah. Like I think I've said before in other episodes or in something, something else we've talked about. I think it's like the ultimate cheat code as an artist is like you can have it all. You can have all the fame. And you know, uh, but it, it, it's it literally cost your life. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, once you once you die in the spotlight, you you get revered in a way that you, some artists probably never would have got that kind of recognition if they were still alive. Yeah. So I think a big part of that is yeah, part, of, part of his death. What do y'all think? Yeah, hundred percent. You go out on your own terms. Um, same thing with like Hunter S. Thompson. Like you know, mm-hmm. he. I do feel a lot differently about that because he was so yeah. old. Was I mean, yeah, passes. but, I mean, he went out, like, honestly, like, I was joking with you guys earlier, like, what if Kurt never committed suicide? Like, he'd probably be, like, shilling, like, NFTs, like, last year. <laughs> he might have become cringe. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, he, he went out, like, as an artist in high standing, and he chose to do that. Like, that is something, like, he has he fortified his legacy to never be tarnished. Outside of that, I mean, yeah, he, he even was, said in his suicide note, "Better than to better to burn out than to fade away." Yeah, which is like kind of a dumb thing. Though. Yeah, it's like such a cliche thing to say. Yeah, exactly. But. Yeah, I, I definitely think you know, given all the time that has passed, he would have just proven, you know, some yeah, it's something some darker colors. Yeah, something um, would something like, something. I do, I do unsavory think, yeah, I do think we might have gotten some think. really cool, some more cool, like, music or art or something, but, like, yeah, I don't know if Kurt would have still been, if he, if he'd have been the one. Well, <laughs> I remember you making the point that, like, he might have, like, talked shit about emo, 
<laughs> like, oh yeah, I could yeah, kind of yeah, maybe yeah. see that. Like, I did this, really, you know. I don't know, maybe. <clears throat> Who knows? He would have been an if, old man on his yeah. porch yelling at this point. He's like, dude, worst halftime show ever. Here's the weird thing. <laughs> yeah, for real. Yeah. I mean, look, look at like Billy Corgan. Like, he's like a fucking Alex Jones like conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, fascist now. Like, <laughs> yeah, dude. I mean, it's it's weird to like think about like. And, I mean, so I think a lot of Nirvana fans sometimes dabble with that thought. It's like, man, I wish Kurt was still alive. He'd probably be doing some cool stuff. But at the same time, in a weird way, I just feel like there was never any hope of him living this long. It feels truly as if his everything around his life and his like artistic legacy was built around the fact that he was going to die at 27. I think he wasn't he wasn't meant to live long. Wasn't meant to live that long life. All right, Kirk Cobain. So, you know, the Good Times boys have been on a break, and we took all this time to figure this out. You step before us out here in, you know, heaven, I guess, or hell. Or or maybe, you know, the after, maybe you're in another afterlife. You believe in Buddhism. Maybe, maybe you've reached nirvana. Probably not, but who knows. But you've come before us kings, and we are about to judge thee and ask, are your good times killing us? Yes. Kurt Cobain, has he been a good thing for society as a whole? Has it set us back somehow? Like, uh, what do we think? And as always, I like to start with our guests, man. So, Will, what do you think, man? Yeah, I started, what I said earlier, I think, is where I'm going to finish. I think Nirvana has been a positive influence. Uh, Net, I, I think it's been a net gain. Um, it's been a net game because of, because we are giving it, uh, very generous, um, interpretations. So yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I say, yeah, let's go ahead and pretend Kurt was more than he was. <laughs> I, you know, let's do this wishful thinking. Um, it, it gives us a model of, of something that we can create out of it. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be true to be like a good story. Yeah. The story doesn't have to be true to like have <laughs> a positive people. influence. And the fact that this whole story is memorialized and isn't going to, isn't going to change much mm-hmm. is just all the more reason to go ahead and hold on to it. Yeah. Uh, I think I agree. I'm going to mirror a lot of what Will says. I don't think, I think as a whole Nirvana has done more good uh, for people uh than bad and all you know i think uh he gave a voice even though it seems kind of like trite now and like you know but he gave a voice to a lot of people and stuff you know and he also uh i think i think he inspired a lot of people you know that's why his death hurt so many people dude you know um kurt was a very flawed person man himself you know and as far as kurt cobain goes you know the heroin killed him you know his depression killed him and that's that really sucks, man. You know, I really, you know, I wish, uh, you know, we could have gotten more, uh, you know, got to see what he would have done. But as a whole, I think Nirvana's done more good than bad. And uh, I'm going to give him a pass. Good times are not killing us, you know, for Kurt Cobain. Yeah, man. I mean, Kurt Cobain, I mean, the, I, the legacy and the idea of Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I knew about Kurt Cobain's sort of childhood for a long time. Um, and, and doing this research this time around as an adult. Um, has definitely sort of changed the way I see like who he was when he was a kid. I definitely view him not to the same rose-colored glasses that I think I used to have. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the the big legacy of Kurt Cobain for a lot of people is that he was sort of an idol for like outcast weirdo type people. You know, I mean, I think in a lot of ways he put on a sort of um, a perspective and a way of perceiving the world uh, through music that 
I, I don't think a lot of people have been put onto. I think a lot of more people are put onto unique music because of how successful Nirvana was. He kind of created this archetype of the sort of uh, of the flawed sort of outcast weirdo. And I think a lot of people that feel in some way out of step with the world identified with Kurt. For me, he was one of the first people I identified with as someone that is a little bit of a weirdo. You know, a lot of people found Kurt Cobain before they found punk and and even metal. You know, it's a it's a big band for a lot of people. And even if it wasn't, I mean. The the music I think inspires people to kind of embrace you know uh, their true selves. I think I think no matter what you say about like Nirvana, I think at the end of the day, like especially when you compare Nirvana to like other grunge bands, I think there's an authenticity to the performance. I think there's something weird about it that like I think inspires a lot of people. And the story that goes behind him, uh, though it is sensationalized and sort of mythologized, it is interesting. <clears throat> And it'll be interesting to see like when a movie is made about it. I, I will say Kurt Cobain is not a person that you want to exactly be like. But I think a lot of times people that are like Kurt Cobain can't help it. I think this is just a type of person. If you got some issues going on in the world, that's what you are. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, I think just the fact that he was able to be his most authentic self while also being a total paradox and a mess is something that a lot of people can relate to. He was a, a flawed but very human human being. So... Despite all the issues um, and despite all of his flaws, yeah, I'm obviously, you know, I mean, I think y'all know where I was going to come with it from the very beginning. The good times are definitely not killing us. Town? Lay it on us. Tell us the hard truth. Yeah, go ahead. Give it to us us straight, Doc. (laughs) Um, I definitely, I think... I think I agree with a lot of what you guys were saying, but I think the biggest thing from my takeaway from someone who's not as romanticized in his like mythos is that he's a cautionary tale of like what it is to be alone and miserable and to have all this just shit piled up on you. Like this is like, he should be like the reason why like looking at him like even though he everyone's like a lot of times like you know money's going to fix everything or like you know fame and family or like friends like if you're not in the right headspace nothing's going to matter outside of that and like i think he is should be something like a lot of loners and like people on the outside can be inspired by but also look at and you know do something about their circumstances to improve themselves. Cause like he had it all and like still ended up killing himself and like letting down the world. It wasn't just his family. Like he let down the world. Taking taking care of himself and getting help was not in Kurt's wheelhouse. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think that outside of everything uh, is my big takeaway from this is like, you should, you should, do something about that if you're feeling this way if you're not normal if you know this is like you this should be your wake-up call like this story so i think he is a net positive i good times aren't killing us yeah y'all i think i'm gonna real quick too i'm gonna piggyback on what k-town said and just say kind of like the thing you know if you or someone you know is uh you know struggling or needs help you know Make sure you reach out, call someone, call the suicide prevention hotline. It's a 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. And, you know, talk to somebody. Yeah, dude, I I think if there's any one very negative uh, legacy that I I don't think is the main legacy of Kirk Bain by any means, but there is some sort of legacy 
towards when we have sensationalized oppression with musicians. We look at people. I mean, we were looking up the ages earlier, but like look at like Lil Peep or Juice World. You know, people that sort yeah. of also had a similar sort of like energy where they were kind of like weirdos <coughs> that uh, you know kind of gave a lot of kids an outlet for their weird mismatched feelings. Yeah, and voice. they both died when they were 21 years old, and they were essentially on stage performing songs about wanting to kill themselves and people are singing it right back at them. Crying for help. You know, it's these people that are crying for help and it's not something worth romanticizing. At the end of the day, the world is better off when we have people that are, you know, even if struggling, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to get on like my own thing, but I definitely have struggled with depression pretty badly in my life and I've developed a very, you know, I think probably a lot of us can can kind of identify with this, but you know, you create those sorts of forces in your life. You create a foundation that gives you a reason to, live and keep going and you know it's just a shame that Kurt Cobain didn't have that but it is nice that today we do talk about mental health more seriously and mm -hmm. I think maybe Kurt Cobain has some small part to do with that perhaps yeah right on all so, right did we do it boys we did, we it. did it we're back and all we right. did it somber note to end on but you know we're back Kurt There'll be a weird stinger after this of us saying something hugely inappropriate, so it's going to get back to normal. Yo, thank you so much, Will, for coming in on doing this yeah, episode. Yeah, this big shout out to honor. you, Will. True thank honor. you. Yeah, appreciate it. I mean, man. we've been doing research on this. We must have met up more times than in any other episode. It's been great just hanging out, just listening to Nirvana and listening to K-Town. Uh, rail and hate against it, but yeah, still. Shouts to UK Towns for yeah, sitting through. Yeah, this has been fucking miserable. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you guys, we're hey, back. Let's, let's we're just back. hang out for fucking three hours at eight o'clock on a fucking dude, Tuesday. On your birthday, hey, I felt bad. You came over yeah, on your dude, birthday. That and was, was this. Yeah, that was rough. That was yeah. fucking rough. Well, let's, let's listen to Nirvana for three hours for your birthday. Well, make sure <laughs> we are back, you guys. So make sure you follow us on all our socials at the Good Times or Killing Us podcast on Facebook at Good. Good Times Killing Us podcast on Instagram and at good underscore times underscore dead, 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 dead on Twitter. Dead, 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 All right. Thank you all so much for listening to the Good Times of Killing Us podcast. Our intro and ad music are from Dettermine and our logo was designed by Rusty Painter. And you know, guys, if you're feeling bad out there, if things are getting rough, just know that seriously, the world will be a lot better off as long as you're not fucking dead. dead, 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 dead. I went to a lot of shows like in my teenage years, but like the the show that did it for me for like hardcore, I was like seventeen and I saw this band play at the Peppermint Beach Club. Oh, nothing personal. Nothing personal, <laughs> and they had a fucking pocket pussy on their mic stand that they were singing wow. into, and like they had like forty of these like gas station porno mags. Yeah, they were and like there climbing. was just like eighty people just like beating the fuck out of each other with like fistfuls of like fucking close-up vag pics like, all over the strips. place like lube was all over the place there were dildos and i was just like yo this is fucking dope <laughs> yeah dude just something wild you're just like yeah. this is unhinged yeah. and i was like i was level. like 16 and i was like i've never seen I, yeah, i've gone dude. like to the lunatic luau and saw slipknot pit play on a like a stadium stage yeah I hadn't seen but i've never like seen this. like someone be bleeding from a dildo punch <laughs>